0: A thousand miles up the Nile, Section 68. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A thousand miles up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards, Chapter 22, Abidas and Cairo, Part Two. The center sanctuary of the seven appears to be dedicated to Kem, who seems to be here as in the Great Temple of Seti at Karnak, the presiding divinity. In this principal sanctuary, which is resplendent with color and marvelous preservation, we especially observe a portrait of Rameses Second in the act of opening a door of a shrine by means of a golden key, formed like a human hand and arm. The lock seems to consist of a number of bolts of unequal length, each of which is pushed back in turn by means of the forefinger of the little hand this doubtless gives a correct representation of the kind of locks in use at that time it was in a corridor opening out from the great hall in this temple that mariette discovered that precious sculpture known as the new tablet of Abidos. in this tableau seti i and rameses ii are seen the one offering incense the other reciting a hymn of praise to the names of seventy-six pharaohs beginning with Mina and ending with Seti himself. To our great disappointment, though one cannot but acquiesce in the necessity for precaution, we found the entrance to this corridor closed and moulded up. A ragged old Arab who haunts the temple in the character of custode told us that the tablet could now only be seen by special permission. We seemed to have been here about half an hour when the guide came to warn us of approaching evening." We had yet the sight and the great tumulus of Tenny to see, the tumulus being distant about twenty minutes' ride. The guide shook his head, but we insisted on going. The afternoon had darkened over, and for the first time in many months a gathering canopy of cloud shut out the glory of sunset. We, however, mounted our donkeys and rode northwards. With better beasts we might have perhaps gained our end. As it was, seeing that it grew darker every moment, we presently gave in, and instead of trying to push on farther, contented ourselves with climbing a high mound which commanded the view towards Tenny. The clouds by this time were fast closing round, and waves of shadows were creeping over the plain. To our left rose the near mountain barrier, dusk and lowering, to our right stretched the misty cornflats, at our feet, all hillocks and open graves, lay the desolate Necropolis. Beyond the palms that fringed the edge of the desert beyond a dark streak that marked the site of teni rose purple in shadow against the twilight a steep and solitary hill this hill called by the natives comes sultan or the mound of the king was the tumulus we so desired to see viewed from a distance and by so uncertain a light it looked exactly like a volcanic cone of perhaps a couple of hundred feet in height It is, however, wholly artificial, and consists of a mass of graves heaped one above another in historical strata. Each layer, as it were, the record of an era, the whole a kind of human coral reef built up from age to age with the ashes of generations. For some years past the Egyptian government had been gradually excavating this extraordinary mound. The lower it was opened, the more ancient were its contents. So steadily retrogressive, indeed, were the interments that it seemed as if the spade of the digger might possibly strike tombs of the first dynasty, and so restore to light relics of men who lived in the age of Mina. According to Plutarch, wrote Mariette, wealthy Egyptians came from all parts of Egypt to be buried at Abinus, in order that their bones might rest near Osiris. Very probably the tombs of Comus Sultan belonged to those personages mentioned by Plutarch nor is this the only interesting attachment to the mound of Comes sultan the famous tomb of osiris cannot be far distant and certain indications lead us to think that it is excavated in precisely that foundation of rock which serves as the nucleus of this mound thus the persons buried in Comes sultan lay as near as possible to the divine tomb the works now in progress at this point have therefore a twofold interest They may yield tombs more and more ancient, tombs even of the first dynasty, and some day or other they may discover to us the hitherto unknown and unknown entrance to the tomb of the god. I bitterly regretted at the time that I could not at least ride to the foot of Komel sultan. But I think now that I prefer to remember it as I saw it from afar off, clothed with mystery in the gloom of that dusky evening." There was a heavy silence in the air, and a melancholy as of the burden of ages. The tumbled hillocks looked like a ghastly sea, and beyond the verge of the desert it was already night. Presently, from among the grave-pits, there crept towards us a slowly moving cloud. As it drew nearer, soft, filmy, shifting, unreal, it proved to be the dust raised by an immense flock of sheep. On they came, a brown, compact mass— their shepherds showing dimly now and then through openings in the cloud. The last pale gleam from above caught them for a moment ere they melted ghost-like into the murky plain. Then we went down ourselves and threaded the track between the mounds and the valley. Palms and houses loomed vaguely out of the dark, and a caravan of camels, stalking by with swift and noiseless footfall, looked like shadows projected on a background of mist. As the night deepened, the air became stifling. There were no stars, and we could scarcely see a yard before us. Crawling slowly along the steep causeway, we felt but could distinguish nothing of the plain stretching away on either side. Meanwhile the frogs croaked furiously, and our donkeys stumbled at every step. When at length we drew near Samada, it was close upon ten o'clock, and Rais Hassan had just started with men and torches to meet us. Next morning early we once again passed Gerga, with its ruined mosque and still unfallen column, and about noonday moored at a place called Asarat, where we paid a visit to a native gentleman, one Ahmed Abu Ratab Aga, to whom we carried letters of introduction. Ratab Aga owns large estates in this province, is great in horse flesh, and lives in patriarchal fashion surrounded by a numerous clan of kinsfolk and dependents. His residence at Aserat consists of a cluster of three or four large houses, a score or so of pigeon-towers, an extensive garden, stabling, exercising ground, and a large courtyard, the whole enclosed by a wall of circuit, and entered by a fine arabesque gateway. He received us in a loggia of lattice-work overlooking the courtyard, and had three of his finest horses, a grey, a bay, and a chestnut, brought out for us to admire. They were just such horses as Velasquez loved to paint, thick in the neck, small in the head, solid in the barrel, with wavy manes and long, silky tails, set high and standing off straight, in true Arab fashion. We doubted, however, that they were altogether pure sang. They looked wonderfully picturesque with their gold-embroidered saddle-cloths, peaked saddles covered with crimson, green, and blue velvet, long shovel-stirrups and tasseled headgear. The Aga's brother and nephews put them through their paces. They knelt to be mounted, lay down and died at the word of command, dashed from perfect immobility into a furious gallop, and when at fullest speed stopped short, flung themselves back upon their haunches and stood like horses of stone. We were told that our host had a hundred such standing in his stables. Pipes, coffee, and an endless succession of different kinds of sherbets went round all the time our visit lasted and in the course of conversation we learned that not only the wages of agricultural laborers, but even part of the taxes to the Khedive are here paid in corn. Before leaving, L, the little lady, and the rider were conducted to the harem, and introduced to the ladies of the establishment. We found them in a separate building with a separate courtyard, living after the usual dreary way of eastern women, with apparently no kind of occupation and not even a garden to walk in the august principal wife i believe he had but two was a beautiful woman with auburn hair soft brown eyes and a lovely complexion she received us on the threshold led us into a saloon surrounded by a divan and with some pride showed us her five children the eldest was a graceful girl of thirteen the youngest a little fellow of four mother and daughter were dressed alike in black robes embroidered with silver pink velvet slippers on bare feet, silver bracelets and anklets, and full pink Turkish trousers. They wore their hair cut straight across the brow, plaited in long tails behind, and dressed with coins and pendants, while from the back of the head there hung a veil of thin black gauze, also embroidered with silver. Another lady, whom we took for the second wife, and who was extremely plain, had still richer and more massive ornaments, but seemed to hold an inferior position in the harem. There were perhaps a dozen women and girls in all, two of whom were black. One of the little boys had been ill all his short life, and looked as if he could not last many more months. The poor mother implored us to prescribe for him. It was in vain to tell her that we knew nothing of the nature of his disease, and had no skill to cure it. She still entreated, and would take no refusal, so in pity we sent her some harmless medicines. We had little opportunity of observing domestic life in Egypt. L visited some of the vice harems in Cairo, and brought away on each occasion the same impression of dreariness. A little embroidery, a few musical toys of Geneva manufacture, a daily drive on the Shubra road, pipes cigarettes sweetmeats jewelry and gossip fill up the aimless days of most egyptian ladies of rank there are however some who take an active interest in politics and in cairo and alexandria the opera-boxes of the khedive and the great pashas are nightly occupied by ladies but it is not by the daily life of the wives of princes and nobles but by the life of the lesser gentry and upper middle class that a domestic system should be judged These ladies of Asserat had no London-built brougham, no Shrubber Road, no opera. They were absolutely without mental resources, and they were even without the means of taking air and exercise. One could see that time hung heavy on their hands, and that they took but a feeble interest in the things around them. The harem stairs were dirty. The rooms were untidy. The general aspect of the place was slatternly and neglected. As for the inmates, though all good nature and gentleness, their faces bore the expression of people who are habitually bored. At Luxor, L and the writer paid a visit to the wife of an intelligent and gentlemanly Arab, son of the late governor of that place. This was a middle-class harem. The couple were young, and not rich. They occupied a small house, which commanded no view and had no garden. Their little courtyard was given up to the poultry their tiny terrace above was less than twelve feet square, and they were surrounded on all sides by houses. Yet in this stifling prison the young wife lived, apparently contented from year's end to year's end. She literally never went out. As a child she had no doubt enjoyed some kind of liberty, but as a marriageable girl, and as a bride, she was as much a prisoner as a bird in a cage." Born and bred in Luxor, she had never seen Karnak. Yet Karnak is only two miles distant. We asked her if she would like to go there with us, but she laughed and shook her head. She was incapable even of curiosity. It seemed to us that the wives of the Fellahin were in truth the happiest women in Egypt. They work hard and are bitterly poor, but they have the free use of their limbs, and they at least know the fresh air, the sunshine, and the open fields." When we left Assarat, there still lay three hundred and thirty-five miles between us and Cairo. From this time the navigation of the Nile became every day more difficult. The dahabia too, got heated through and through, so that not even sluicing and swabbing availed to keep down the temperature. At night, when we went to our sleeping-cabins, the timbers alongside of our berths were as hot to the hand as a screen in front of a great fire. Our crew— though to the manner born, suffered even more than ourselves, and L at this time had generally a case of sunstroke on her hands. One by one we passed the places we had seen on our way up Siut, Montfalut, Gebel Abu Fida, Rhoda, Minia. After all, we did not see Beni Hassan. The day we reached that part of the river a furious sandstorm was raging, such a storm that even the rider was daunted. Three days later we took the rail at Biba and went on to Cairo, leaving the Philae to follow as fast as wind and weather might permit. We were so wedded by this time to Dahabia life that we felt lost at first in the big rooms at Shepherd's Hotel, and altogether bewildered in the crowded streets. Yet here was Cairo, more picturesque, more beautiful than ever. Here were the same merchants squatting on the same carpets and smoking the same pipes, in the Tunis bazaar. Here was the same old cake-seller still ensconced in the same doorway in the muski, Here were the same jewellers selling bracelets in the Khan Khalili. The same money-changers sitting behind their little tables at the corners of the streets. The same veiled ladies riding on donkeys and driving in carriages. The same hurrying funerals and noisy weddings. The same odd cries and motley costumes and unaccustomed trades. Nothing was changed. We soon dropped back into the old life of sightseeing and shopping, buying rugs and silks, and silver ornaments, and old embroideries, and Turkish slippers, and all sorts of antique and pretty trifles, going from Mohammedan Mosque to rare old Coptic churches, dropping in for an hour or two most afternoons at the Bulak Museum, and generally ending the day's work with a drive on the Shubra Road, or a stroll round the Esbekia Gardens. End of section sixty-eight